here we go. Screen Heat Miami, we're back. Screen Heat Miami. Bringing the heat to the screen. It's hot. It's hot. We are in July in Miami. The hot Emmys were just announced. The hot Emmys were just announced. Speaking of heat, wow. (laughs) That's some heat. Yeah, a lot of controversy around this year's Emmy nominations, huh? A lot. Yeah, a lot of people excited that HBO, once again, is the most nominated network, uh, including their flagship show, Game of Thrones, which received, uh, according to uh, the good folks at the Emmys, has received uh, 32 nominations just for the show. Uh, And it's also received a total of 137 nominations for the network for HBO. We spoke a lot about Game of Thrones on the last podcast with Mr. Adrian Wooten. Ah, yes, Mr. Hooten. Yes. That was fun. Our yes. friends from across the pond. So you have to check out the last episode to hear about the production going on over right. there in the UK with Game of Thrones. But Game of Thrones has pulled off a dragon. Yes. Most Emmy noms in history. Wow. 32 nominations. And you know what's interesting? And I I just read this and I wanted to bring it up because I just think it's fascinating how this sort of works. You know, just kind of the mechanisms of how networks and studios approach, you know, their their nominations and nominees. And and I didn't know that uh, that, for example, certain networks and studios won't officially submit all their actors for consideration right and, yes and and uh, what came out in the reporter apparently is that uh, there are three major supporting characters in the last season of Game of Thrones that were not submitted by HBO but they were allowed to submit themselves and self-submission self-submit they have to pay a $220 fee something like that to the Emmys and and they would be uh, uh, considered and and those three actors are uh, uh, Alfie Allen who plays Theon Greyjoy uh, Gwendolyn Christie who plays Brienne of Tarth and I hope I'm saying this correctly if not forgive me my lady uh, Carice Von Houten who plays uh, Melisandre uh, who all received nominations for the Emmys but were not officially submitted by HBO they got noms Thoughts. How can you not submit Reek? Yeah, what a storyline. You cannot overlook Reek. I mean, what a redemption arc. I mean, everyone talked about, you know, the lack of a redemption arc for uh, Jamie Lannister. But that character really came full circle. Like, he was, like, up and down and then up again. And Yes, he got his junk cut off. That is scary. You have to get nominated. You need to win just for, for that. that. Yes, I, it's you know that's that's uh, <laughs> you know there are a lot of things that happen to both sexes, but I say if there's one thing that that can happen to a, a man who you know obviously it, uh, it, it, that's that's a rough one. <laughs> first woman knighted and to, yeah, on a show. Gwendolyn Christie, the first Brianna female Tarth, first woman knighted. knighted in the in the in the fictional kingdom of Westeros. Yeah. Got to get an Emmy for that. How progressive is that? At I least nominated. At least. And then, you know, the whole thing of how she handles her relationship with Jamie and the whole, you know, her breakdown at the end and how she's trying to just retain the strength and her sense of pride. But again, her sense of, of loss and impending doom. Like there's so much that went into that character that that this actor has put into that role that it just it seems odd that that she wasn't submitted. Yeah. But I mean, that's nothing to take away from the other actors, because, right. you know, I, I Arguably one of the best shows in history, 
And really, everyone came with it. Agreed. But then I guess the question becomes, why not just nominate everyone? Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, you know, strategy, I guess. Strategy. Anyway, we're here. You know, obviously, we don't know the inner workings of of HBO's thought process. Uh, I'm happy that everyone ultimately did get a nomination that, you know, many fans feel deserved it. Um, But, you know, coming in a close second, uh, which has always been hot on the heels for the last couple of years on HBO, is uh, Netflix. Yeah, Netflix. They were on top last year. They were on top last year. This year, they dropped down the second, but a close second, 117 nominations for for the big streamer. Yeah, it's amazing to see the transformation of the industry and very fast. Very fast. I mean, that happens super quick. Super quick. Streaming is it's it's uh, streaming wars. I keep saying it, I keep saying it, but it's I it's no like, you know, to quote Game of Thrones, winter is coming. Winter's here. Winter's here, man. The streaming wars are here. Yeah. Oh, oh, you know, in our case, summer the heat. Yes. <laughs> the, Summer is coming, the heat right. is here. Summer is here. Uh, but yeah, we've got a great show today. Uh, we actually have two interviews. Uh, it's a twofer. Uh, two special guests uh, that uh, one was uh, one of our marquee speakers at the Miami Medium Film Market uh, this year. And the other is a good friend of yours and a colleague and a collaborator. Yeah. And this is really apropos because, uh, you know, we, we spoke about the Emmys. Both of our guests work in tv and in film that's right yeah so well, we we said last time too that nowadays it's really not about film and tv anymore there's not that that sort of uh cavernous hole there used to be between both of those um uh, uh tracks you know you're either a tv producer or a film producer a tv director or a film director a tv actor or a film actor and there was very little crossover uh but now it's just like we keep saying, it's all content and it's all valid and it's all equally valid, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, that line has been crossed. It's been crossed. It's blurred. Screen Heat Miami. <laughs> presented by the Miami Media and Film Market and Kajik Multimedia. Here we are. Here we are. So let's just jump into some background. Yeah, our guests. Well, let's see who our guests are. So Matthew Stein. Can Matthew you, Stein. Can you give us a little background on... Matthew Stein. Please. Matthew Stein, uh, not only a very good friend uh, and a colleague for many years, but he, he is now the uh, senior vice president of scripted, head of scripted over at uh, uh, Live Nation Productions, uh, which just came off an incredible run. Uh, our friend Matt will co- go into more detail on that uh, with A Star Is Born, uh, which which did great at the box office, uh, was rewarded with an Oscar. One of the biggest year. films of. One of the biggest film, films of 2018, and now it's uh, basically Matt's job to to find the next big thing, whether it's film or television or or all of the above. So it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how he handles that. But uh, but yeah, Matt Matt and I go way back. Uh, he's had many jobs uh, uh, over his illustrious career. He started with the well. He actually started uh, in our film school. <laughs> a fellow University of Miami alumni. The came. U. The U. And uh, yeah, we uh, we became friendly way back in the day. Uh, he ended up moving to New York and getting a job with the Weinstein Company. I ended up going to L.A. and getting a job with ICM Partners. Uh, but we, we remained good friends. And then over the years, you know, I would go and just kind of pitch him this idea of, you know, why don't you come down and speak at our little conference? And uh, it's, it's small, it's boutique, but it's very intimate. A lot of people are getting a lot of um, sort of buzz around the idea that you can create really meaningful relationships. And so uh, I actually flew up to New York 
while he was at the Weinstein Company and and had a uh, a meeting with him in one of the conference rooms over in Tribeca, right after the I think the first MMFM that I worked on, and I just brought him you know uh, still photographs and and the program and told him who we had and how it could go grow and become better and and you got to come and and he was just like dude, this is awesome. The rest is history. The rest is history. <laughs> so, uh, and obviously, I'm going to let him get into more detail during the interview about, you know, sort of his overall trajectory and where he is now with Live Nation. But, you know, he's just an exciting guy who really understands the nuts and bolts of the industry from a creative standpoint, from a technical, from a business standpoint, just kind of a wealth of knowledge uh, for anyone that's, that's, you know, curious about how not only studios and major production companies work uh but you know how uh independent producers play a a role in all this in terms of packaging and all that kind of fun stuff yeah because he had his own company at a point and also you know he worked for sony that's right yeah so executive hat producer hat you know hybrid love it let's talk about our second guest so our second guest is mr jimmy jean louis who is actually a hybrid as well jimmy uh started out as an actor and he does both TV and film. Some films of note, Hollywood Homicide, Tears of the Sun. He did Joy with Jennifer Lawrence, Bradley Cooper, uh, and a lot of big names, Robert De Niro. He TV. A lot of people know him from the TV shows Heroes, Heroes Reborn, and most recently Claws, which uh, Miss Niecy Nash is the star of that show and she was nominated for the netflix show that has 16 emmy nominations that show's done wonders wonders and so we'll talk a little bit about when they see us in the outro so listen for that and uh there is another actually a local tie to that show as well uh john leguizamo was nominated for best supporting actor who uh just finished and this is something we're going to get into more detail in a later podcast a an independent feature which actually is directorial debut called critical thinking that was filmed here locally in Miami. Uh, very interesting story that uh, we'd love to talk about more in a future episode. So he's been spending a lot of time down here as well. Recently, uh, he just did his one-man show at the Arsh Center uh, called the uh, "It's the, the History of... Wait, I don't want to mess this up. It's the History, history of Latins for Morons. Is that that sounds about right. Look yeah. it up. Let's look it up. But Mr. Leguizamo, we have to get you on the show. We got to get you on the show if you're listening. That's our bid. There you go. Yeah, Latin History for Morons. That is the exact. Also on Netflix, by the way. Oh, so if you yeah, get a chance right. to see it live, definitely um, you know subscribe to Netflix and and check it out there. But uh, uh, Mr. Jimmy Jean Louis is also a producer, and we did this interview around the same time Jimmy was here for the theatrical release of one of his films, of which he starred in and produced, called Rattlesnakes. And that's with Jack Coleman, who also starred with Jimmy in Heroes, and. Uh, Robin Lee and a host of others and that one was really really well received at the Miami Film Festival and festivals around the world and uh, it will soon be on Amazon and VOD so look for Rattlesnakes Uh, he had an interesting story about uh, the fires that happened in LA Hmm. and how they um, moved production around the fires right so Cool. Back to our heat theme. Heat theme. Now these these big streamers, man, they're really making moves. It's interesting. To yeah, see what they're doing and and how uh, you know even a company like HBO now, whose parent company AT and T, has created this Warner Media brand, and now they're they're sort of branding their OTT as uh, HBO Max. 
So yeah, putting a lot of pressure on HBO. Robust offerings. Yeah, yeah. Plus, obviously, all the the library of, of Warner Brothers shows and Friends. They snagged Friends off of Netflix. There you go. It's a knockdown drag out now. I know they were Friends. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess they won't be there for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, but it's great. You know, this is this is a type of competition that I think the industry needed. I think it's energized the industry. I think it's it's again a really great time for content creators. I think that there's so many interesting shows that we're seeing that are being produced at such a high level, but have such creative value, especially in the television and episodic space. Um, you know, Amazon as well. Uh, Mrs. Maisel was, I guess, the top nominated show for them. Uh, and that's a show that, you know, probably would not have gotten picked up by a traditional network. Uh, but, you know, Amazon gave them a chance and now they received 20 nominations, which is actually the second highest just behind Game of Thrones. Yeah, that's that's a high, high number for yeah. one for a single show. Yeah, yeah. Show that again, if it wasn't for a streamer like Amazon, may have never happened. We may have never seen it. Uh, so it's it's really, really interesting. And I, I really think that that this type of competition breeds, you know, quality and creativity. And, and again, it's giving these creatives a chance to to showcase their work and their stories in an environment that otherwise we may have never seen. Yeah, you know. I, I can say there's a show that it actually won uh, an Emmy last year, Godless. Mm. And we had uh, Mr. Carlos Rafael Rivera Ooh. here at the Miami Media and Film Market. He won an award for his music composing for that show. Right. And that show was originally submitted as a film to Netflix and they turned it into a limited series. Wow. And, you know, that really shows you the marker of the times where, you know, people from the film world are able to transpose and flesh out their work, their storytelling right, in a different environment. And that was one of the biggest shows of last year. So that is a mark of the times. Yeah. No, it definitely is. And it, I, I love it. I think it's great to be able to to just, you know, kind of pop on a show whenever you want. You know, some people are saying maybe the whole binge watching thing is not a great sort of thing, particularly. for It's a great thing. I love it. I love it. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I like I, I like the option of watching an episode a week or a day if I want to or whenever you want to or whenever you want to, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, so it's I think that there is uh, there's a certain level of, of comfort with the way things were done. But I, I'm equally as comfortable with the way things are done now, you know because it's just more choice for the viewer. Yeah. Well, now that's a great segue into our set here. Our two great interviews. Our cozy up. Oh, cozy up. These are going to be good. To our next interviews, Mr. Matthew Stein. That's right. And Mr. Jimmy Jean-Louis. Let's do it. Okay, here we are. Hey, buddy. How you doing? Matt, I just met you. What's going on? We, <laughs> ah, come on. We go way back. Um, so where are we at now? So we're actually at the famed Biltmore Hotel in Coral Gables, Florida for Miami Media Film Market. This is super cool to be here because one of my, I think this might be like my sixth or seventh one that I've come to, if not more. And I went to school at the University of Miami, so it's always good to come back to good old Miami, Florida. What do you think about Miami? I love Miami, actually. I think Miami is the perfect cultural blend. The weather is great. The shooting locations are amazing. The people are tremendous. I always have a good time when I'm here. And again, I have some uh, real heart for it because of my experience going to the University of Miami. So I have some of my closest friends in both New York and Los Angeles. Uh, I met in 
uh, Miami during my four years here. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So do you still work with some of these people? I do. You know, most, first and foremost, they're friends because we met in college. But a few times we've talked about, actually, we've developed a few things. Nothing's ever been made with them yet, but we've definitely developed a few projects. And I'm always having lunch with them or breakfast. And I, I know a lot of their families and stuff. So, you know, we're really tight. And what's great, too, about UM is it pulls people from really all over the world, but especially the U.S. So, like, so many people that I met weirdly at the University of Miami are actually from the Northeast, where I'm from, just because, like many of us, we do, we grew up shoveling snow, so we needed to come down to Miami to actually, you know, get out of that, at least for a few years. Where are you from? From New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, born and raised in New Jersey, and like many people from, you know, New York, New Jersey, Boston, Connecticut, that area, we come down, either our parents come down for the winter or snowbird time, or we come down, uh, you know, for college. And then, you know, most people, especially you majored in film, which I did, um, travel to New York or Los Angeles from there. I did 13 years in New York, traveled to L.A. constantly, but I was always based corporately and lived and worked in New York. Uh, now I've been in L.A. for about six years living and working there. Yeah. So let's just talk. We're going to get into your career in just a minute. Sure. But I just want to talk about, you know, the difference between working in a New York yes. and working in an L.A. It's actually super interesting. The first and foremost, the difference is the three hour time difference, because and I've experienced it the last few days in Miami. You're definitely working late. Thank God I was a young man when I actually was living and working in New York because there were a lot of late nights and New York's very conducive for that because you're always returning emails and phone calls with a three-hour time difference. From, from L.A.? Uh, from between New York and L.A., exactly. Meaning living in New York, having to work late in New York because you have the three hours behind uh, of L.A. So you're always working later in New York, but the city is very conducive to that. As far as Los Angeles, it's also great, too, because you you it's not as conducive to late night, but it doesn't have to be because you're pretty much on the same time and schedule with everyone else. Um, it's definitely a challenge if you have projects in Europe. Like, for example, I was working on a movie in London around this time last year, and that eight-hour time difference to L.A. definitely kills you. Um, and these days, too, New York um, is always going to be a super vibrant film scene. There were a lot more companies that were around, uh, bigger studios when I was coming up in the business. That's really consolidated a lot more to Los Angeles. So let's just talk about your career. Mm-hmm. Did you start your career in New York? I did. My very first job ever uh, was a receptionist for Miramax Films. Miramax was a corporate entity of the Walt Disney Company. Um, so I literally started there as a receptionist. It was my very first job ever. And after a few months, I actually got a job being Bob Weinstein's second assistant. And basically, there's a first assistant and a second assistant, or there was at the time. And I was the second assistant for two years. And then I was promoted and became the first assistant assistant. The second assistant sort of mission control and the, the first assistant travels. So that actually began my pretty consistent travel between New York and L.A. Um, but uh, ever since I became the first assistant and then I got promoted and I was a junior production executive, a senior production executive. And my, and my senior tenure there was running production for Dimension Film.
films and I had staff in New York and LA and got to oversee a ton of films um, on the dimension film side so it was you know Piranha 3D Scary Movie 4 you know Halloween directed by Rob Zombie um, you know The Mist 1408 two Stephen King films it was really a good time to be there and we worked with really interesting writers and filmmakers and making some really cool genre movies comedy family films by kids movies etc it was really a, a very exciting time to not only be in New York but to work for that company well, I'm going to take a little departure because Rob Zombie is one of my favorite artists there you go and he was just here actually was in he? concert no yeah. way at okay. the Fillmore at the Fillmore okay very cool yeah very and cool. I wish I would have known I would have reached out to you yeah no he's tremendous I love him both as a filmmaker yes. and as a musician yeah it's actually interesting so the anecdote on that was we had seen um, The Devil's Rejects and House of Thousand Corpses particularly Devil's Rejects I remember talking to my boss at the time and I was like you gotta check this film out he did and there's a true story we actually were on the way to the meeting with Rob and my boss turned to me and said well, what do we have for him what do we do and I paused and I thought well he would be great to direct Halloween and my boss was like that's a great idea and so he said don't say a word and he wound up pitching it in the room uh, you know I did some follow up Rob was super intrigued and within days Rob was pitching it pitching it to us we bought the pitch and we were off to the races oh wow that's great yeah that's, so, that's actually how it went down that just gave me an education actually, for one of my favorite artists one of my favorite movies and I just found out something there you go. that you're a fan of two of my favorite movies, which are The, the Devil's, Devil's Rejects. Yeah, the, yeah. Right. So um, let's just talk about the evolution of your career. Yes. Because, you know, then it's from Dimension. What, what was it like working at Dimension? You know, so, can we talk about some of the inner workings of it? Yeah, I mean, like at the time, you know, originally we were corporately based uh, by, we were the art house division of Disney and Disney owned Miramax Dimension Films. And, you know, about 2004, 2005, we split apart from Disney. We took a lot of the franchises with us and we ultimately became Dimension Films as an independent film company. And it was a tremendous time to be there. And I guess, as like I said, there were tremendous executives, many of those executives who were there in marketing, in distribution, in production, I'm also still personal friends with. And they've got, got, gone on to great careers at different companies as well. It was definitely a hotbed of both um, uh, great executives and working with great filmmakers. So from New York mm -hmm. then and from Dimension. Yes. Made a producing deal with Dimension Films and moved to LA. Came aboard as a producer for hire on a remake of Amityville Horror called Amityville The Awakening starring Bella Thorne and Jennifer Jason Lee. That Blumhouse was actually producing but Dimension Films was cash flowing the movie or production financing the movie. And then from there I actually went to work at Sony and Sony was an interesting departure for me because it was the first time I ever worked on like a studio studio lot in the Thalberg building on the lot it's a beautiful lot in Culver City and I worked for the head of uh, Sony International Productions and we were doing English language international movies we were doing local language films and we were also doing uh, developing television which is an unheard of sort of a unit because very rarely do you get to do film and television within the confines of a studio 
it's usually very bifurcated or trifurcated, if that's even a word. Um, but in this case, at the time, this division doesn't exist in the way I'm describing it anymore. It exists as just doing local language movies. But it was an opportunity to expand my resume to do things like taking Sony IP, like Sony has my best friend's wedding in their library. So we would develop my best friend's wedding in China and my best friend's wedding in Mexico and uh, and you hire local talent both in front of and behind the camera to sort of do those movies and also original films in local territories. That ultimately led me to, as I mentioned, my time in London around this time last year, March, April, and May. I was working on a movie for Sony, a British horror comedy there called Slaughterhouse Rules, and it was a really cool experience to be there. And that's actually what transitions into my current job, which I was talking about in one of the film panels here, and that's um, the head of scripted film and television development at Live Nation. I'd had a meeting there before I went to London, and then while I was in London, I got the phone call to actually come aboard. So I flew back, I had like 24 hours to get my stuff together, and off to the races. And I just basically had been there for a little over a year, and we're developing a robust slate of film and television, all of which sort of leans into the music space. Yeah, so you came in under one of the big projects. Yeah, it was, I call it the tailwind. We had, we had a great tailwind, and the great tailwind was a strategic investment into a Warner Brothers film that starred Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper and was directed by Bradley Cooper called Star is Born. So that was actually a tremendous experience. I wish I could say, could say I had something to do with the movie. I didn't, but it's a nice tailwind to have. But what we have to do and what we have to prove is that we can now develop those types of movies in-house and then go set them up at studios. So it's a nice hybrid between being a producer and an executive and a buyer and a seller. And we're doing this with film and television. Yeah, so I just want to get into that. That's This is a great segue into more specifics, you know? So let's just talk about being a producer versus the sure. other side sure. and the synergy between the two yeah. and differences, yeah, pros, so, cons? No, it's a great question. So basically at Sony and Dimension, we were studio executives, so to speak, that would buy the project, work with the writers, and oversee it from start to finish. But ultimately, we um, uh, cash flowed or actually physically paid for the project. At Live Nation, we have the ability to do that, but really at the end of the day, like any producer, like most producers, we're not financing our own material, but I'm very lucky because we can finance the development of material, but ultimately, like a lot of producers, we have to get the material together, create the package, and then bring it to a studio or a streamer or a network or whoever the buyer is, and then they pay for it and market it. But we have the package that we've developed internally, and we can also help in marketing the movie as we did with The Star is Born as well, because Live Nation owns Ticketmaster, um, and we also, you know, have obviously, you know, one of the most robust concert programs in the world. And so it's amazing to actually use uh, the power of all of that in the marketing of our product. Yeah, but I'm, and I've been, you know, there's this whole thing about deals with music artists where the music artists then are involved in 
these collaterals, Absolutely. television projects, film projects, yes. music projects. Well, you know, like our CEO always says, um, Live Nation is how do we as the film and television group forward the live of Live Nation? And we're very much an artist first company. So at the end of the day, it's like, you know, the core business is not what we're doing, but it's a great addendum to what we're doing because so many of the artists have great untold stories, either based on their own personal lives or stories that they want to tell. So our sort of mantra is let's forward those stories and forward those visions. Yeah. So you were telling me about another one of my favorite groups, yes. uh, the Foo Fighters, Dave Grawl. Yes. Are you at liberty to talk about that at all? I probably shouldn't right now. Okay. I mean, but it's there's definitely a project um, that uh, based on a book that his mother wrote, which is actually super cool, which is actually on the unscripted side, which is, which is not my division. So we also, that's the other thing we do is, you know, I do all the scripted stuff. My colleague Ryan does all of the unscripted material. So um, they actually cash flow and produce documentaries. And they did Lady Gaga Five Foot Two, and they did um, Imagine Dragons Believer, and a bunch more that they, they as in the division. Um, so it's super exciting because sometimes not everything is going to be a movie or television show. Maybe it's a documentary or docu-series. So what's great about the group is, and one of the things that excited me to go there is that we're able to do both within one unit. It just bifurcated into two groups, the scripted group and the unscripted group. So then when I think about this whole synergy and the evolution of the industry, yes, yes. and it really has evolved. It uh, really has. And, you know, you wonder, it, it's, I, I run a small production company, sure. you know, but you wonder, do the bigger players have a handle on the way that this industry is shifting and moving? You know, it's actually one of the things that we have to think about all the time, because at the end of the day, we're actually a very small division as well. We are literally just a few people at the end of the day in a very small division that happens to be part of a multi-billion dollar publicly traded company. But at the end of the day, I've always liked to be scrappy, so we don't let that go to our heads that we have all these tremendous resources. We do have to actually be super scrappy, and we do have to actually, you know, be hustling because everyone else is doing the same thing. And, you know, with the changing landscape, there's challenges and there's excitement. The challenges are a lot of people move from different companies to companies. The mandates change of what they're necessarily looking for. But at the end of the day, great stories and great projects and great filmmakers and great writers, no matter what genre you're developing in or ultimately what's going to take you home. But what's exciting, too, is that just as more um, seemingly more buyers are going away, there's also my more buyers that are, are popping up. Quibi is kind of going to be coming out. Jeffrey Katzenberg's a new app, uh, which is going to be tremendous. Um, and, you know, Hulu is going to have a new mandate. Obviously, Netflix is going to continue to morph. Um, Amazon, Apple, Apple Plus, and Disney Plus are coming out, which is going to be a whole new set of buyers they're buying already and have been buying already. So, you know, there probably will be less theatrical movies being made, but a lot more that 
you can just get at the touch of a button, which has a lot of excitement too. What do you think about this Pluto Viacom purchase? You know, or this Viacom Pluto purchase. I think that I, I won't comment specifically on that, but I will say at the end of the day, a company as big as Viacom and all the other companies are looking at this techno, all these technologies, and they're going, okay, to a certain degree, we are, um, we've thought with a certain set of facts. Now we have to look at the current facts at the table and go, okay, the dynamic is shifting. So how do we get into that space? And sometimes getting into that space, it's easiest to just buy a company where you can actually plug product through or take advantage of the technology that they offer, whereas other times you can actually build that in-house for yourself, but it takes a much longer time to do that. So I don't know what their specific strategy was, but I would imagine the idea would be to say, well, we're Viacom or we're a big corporation. We can just buy that company and at least do a little bit of that in the, for the time being until such time as we're able to morph that acquisition into something or do it ourselves. So you are someone that started as a receptionist. That's right. You, you moved your way through. That's right. Executive, producer. Now, and still continuing to, you know, I had to morph and change every day as well and look at the landscape and go, you know, I've now done many different things and I've been a completely independent producer. I've been a producer with a relationship with Sony and projects at Sony. I've been a producer with a relationship with Dimension with projects at Dimension. I've had dark days and exciting days and everything in between. This is a great gig for right now because, like I said, I get to wear two hats, buyer, seller, producer, and executive. And we're going to continue to expand our team and continue to help grow the division and again serve the live and serve the artist first mentality okay so i have one last of question of course anything what would you tell your just graduated from the u and my old self. full disclosure yeah. i graduated from the u yes. as well we, we have a kinship there bleed orange and green yes uh, what would you tell your just graduating advice for your just graduating matthew stein honestly well i would say a few things i would say personal and professional the professional would be at the end of the day um uh do exactly what you did. I wouldn't really change a lot because at the end of the day, it's all about getting your foot in the door. And I got my foot in the door and it was becoming a receptionist and then it grew from there. And so I always tell people, just get your foot in the door. It doesn't necessarily mean that's what you're going to be doing for the rest of your career. It just means your foot's in the door. And that's sort of sometimes the hardest part. And then personally, I would say, you know, work is sometimes becomes life, but you got to live life as well. So, you know, you're trying to make up a little bit for lost time too. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. Pleasure to be here in Miami at MMFM. Great. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Matt. Thank you so much. So we are on a live podcast. For our listeners, we have a very special guest, one of my favorite actors and producers now, Mr. Jimmy Jean-Louis. Thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure to be with you, Kevin. So, you have a storied career. I mean, you know, you've worked with some of the biggest names in Hollywood. Everything from Bruce Willis, Harrison Ford. Uh, now, one of my favorites, Niecy Nash. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> so, that, you know, that's kind of bringing it around full circle. But can you tell me a little bit about your career? Uh, my career in general, you know, I mean, really quickly... 
uh, as far as the movies are concerned, uh, started uh, in 97 when I moved uh, to Los Angeles. And then uh, after three years of struggling, I was able to, to pick up my first gig, which was uh, uh, that movie with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. And also I had a little stint in The Born Identity. Uh, but then after the movie with Jean-Claude Van Damme, you know, I was able to really uh, crack a door, you know, because after that I had uh, Tears of the Sun with Bruce Willis, Hollywood Homicide with Harrison Ford, uh, Monster in Law with uh, Jennifer, uh, Jennifer Jello, <laughs> Jello and Jane Fonda. Jennifer Lopez. Jennifer Lopez. But the, the reason why... That small name, Jennifer Lopez. No, it's also because I, I, I work with the other J-Lo, you know, Jennifer Lawrence, on Joy. Right. So right, that's right. why, you know, I stopped on the, on the low. Uh, but then between all that, you know, I did Heroes, you know, which, uh, which, uh, which gave me a lot of visibility, you know, around the world being the number one show at the time. Um, so, so we had, uh, we as actors had to travel the entire world just to, to represent the TV show. And that opened all the international doors for me that enabled me to go and work in France, in Africa, in England, in India, in Mexico, in Brazil. And, um, and yeah, so because I, I, I lived in most of those places prior to come to America, so it was very easy for me to, to just go back there because I speak the language, I understand the culture. So yeah, it's been, it's been quite interesting. And of course, lastly, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, the, it's uh, the last project that I, uh, that I produced, which is Rattlesnakes, and of course, uh, Claws with uh, with Nissan Ash. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a, a few things in between, a lot of things in between, but I just want to, you know, when you were talking about the international connection that you have, for me, it's remarkable because you've lived in a lot of these places, as you just said, but you also speak a lot of the languages, right? Yeah, because when I lived in those places, I was really in search of, uh, of myself, uh, in search of some kind of identity. And, uh, and every time I went to a new place, I really got into the mindset of the locals. So I lived like a local. Uh, I really picked up the languages, whether it was uh, in Spain, in Italy. Um, so I speak Creole, French, Italian, Spanish, and of course, English. I tried German, but German was a little bit too complicated for me, man. <laughs> so we're going to get a little bit of each language from you before this podcast is over. But can you uh, just let's talk about where you're from? Ah, I'm from Haiti, man. I'm I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Haiti boy uh, who, you know, after some very uh, underprivileged start and difficult start, uh, uh, but also very rich in many other ways, uh, migrated to to Paris. So so it's Haiti first, and then and and then Paris, and then the adventure started after that. Yeah, I want to just talk a little bit about Haiti because Haiti is one of my favorite countries in the world. Oh, thank you, man. Yeah, I mean, I've been there many, many, many times. And, you know, I lived in Africa. And so for me, you know, Africa has such a warmth and it has such a feel that 
Haiti also has. Yeah. So every time I get off the plane and I step off in Haiti, you can feel the electricity, the energy, the vibrance and the connectivity, the connectivity of the people. You know, it's almost like, you know, if you talk to someone there, that word could get around the whole country because of that connectivity. Um, Can we just talk a little bit about Haiti? It it is, you know, beautiful. There are a lot of beautiful uh, places and points in Haiti, but you know the people that's where the for me the beauty really lies yeah i mean um, when, when i speak about haiti the number one thing i say is that uh, haiti is the first black republic to fight and win the independence back in 1804 so with that comes a little bit of the history of haiti the cultural history of haiti the spirit of the haitians the pride the, the pride and everything that goes with that kind of 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 uh, of fight uh, so now uh, after more than 200 years of uh, of uh, of uh, being liberated from from slavery from the french people you have uh, a lifestyle that is first of all economically pretty hard pretty difficult the people are highly spirited uh, the culture is extremely strong and because it's full of other problems it gives you that richness that you can't fully comprehend unless you go to the country Haiti used to be called La Perle des Antilles because it used to be the most beautiful place in the Caribbean it still is it's just that that place now is covered with you know a little bit of dirt but the beauty of it is still there and and and, and the energy of the people has not changed it's still there you know with slight differences so that's why the only way for anyone to fully understand Haiti or have a hint of what Haiti is about is really to pay a visit. You pay a visit, most of the people think they're going to go to Haiti, try to help, and when they come back from Haiti, they're the one who got helped because of the energy that they got from the country. So I'm going to get back in just a minute to, for me, one of my favorite roles that you that you did, which is Two Cent Levateur. But I just want to visit uh, one of the trips that I was on with you in Haiti, yeah. which was with uh, Josh Brolin, Diane Lane, uh, Paul Haggis, Madeline Stowe, Maria Bello. Yes. And, you know, for me to see how all of the people on that trip were transformed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. From, we, the, from the beginning and then until the end. Yeah, completely. Uh, until the end because some of them are still uh, working in Haiti. And that trip took place in 2008. 2008, which is way before the earthquake that devastated Haiti. Um, so yes, those people were transformed. And up until now, I still, I mean, I saw Diane, Diane Lane a week ago. And once again, we spoke about that very, that very same trip, you know, how much that trip touched her. You know, it's, it, it's incredible. Um, yes, I, I, of course, I had the pleasure and the honor to, to portray Toussaint Louverture in a miniserie, in a French miniserie. And, uh, and it's absolutely wonderful. Uh, Can you just tell, tell, tell our audience who uh, Toussaint Levator was and what he did? 
Yeah, Toussaint Louverture is one of the forefathers of uh, of the Haitian Revolution. Uh, he was the top general that opened all the doors. So you had Toussaint Louverture, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, you had Pétion and Christophe. But Toussaint Louverture was the leader. Uh, he was first Haitian, then he became French under under Bonaparte, where he he learned about all the tactics and then went back to Haiti and then fought Bonaparte and then destroyed uh, the, the army of Bonaparte. And that was back in the late 1700s and then beginning of uh, 18... I think he died in 1803. And then Haiti was liberated in 1804. So I played Toussaint Louverture uh, in a ministry, you know, which is uh, called Toussaint Louverture for the people uh, who want to see clips of it. They can probably go on the net, type Jimmy Jean-Louis slash Toussaint Louverture. They might see a trailer or they might see clips. And if you really want the movie, I think you can go on Amazon. Uh, .fr, the French, the French branch of Amazon. So, so yeah, Toussaint Louverture is probably one of the greatest heroes who, who ever existed because he was the model for Martin Luther King, for Nelson Mandela, for Marcus Garvey. Those people used Toussaint as a reference for their own fights. So that's why, you know, that man was probably one of the most important black heroes that we've had. And they defeated arguably the biggest uh, military at the time. At the time, yeah, it was uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, yeah. And also, because we are in America, we have to understand that uh, a big part of America was able to be purchased from the French because of uh, of uh, of Haiti. So the, the entire Louisiana purchase happened because of Haiti defeating French. So just get, can you briefly just give us one line? Because... Uh, the movie was done in French. Yeah. Can you give us one line from that movie? Uh, I'm just trying to 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 remember a couple of lines that uh, that were very important. Qu'est-ce qui fait ça? Où même? Qui m'ennuie? Parti. Tu les. Ces hommes sont des traîtres. So that was a little speed. Yeah. Great, 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 great. <laughs> I wish you all were here to see that. Jimmy performed that. He became Toussaint in front of our eyes. Uh, thank you for that. I don't know, but it was really, really quick, guys. Really quick. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to get to a movie that you did in Spanish. Yes. Uh, I did a few, but uh, the one that is well known is uh, La Caravacia, The Empty Box, which premiered at the at the Toronto Film Festival and also was nominated for the equivalent of the Mexican Oscars. Can you just tell us a little bit about that very briefly? Um, the, La Caravacia, it's a movie that we shot in, uh, in Mexico City where I portray uh, a, a, a Haitian man who migrated to to Mexico and he lived there for about 30 years and it's like and he's had a complicated relationship with his daughter it's really about two main characters him and his daughter he's a man who is dying who is completely ignored his daughter for the entire life but as he's becoming weaker you know his disease just got him closer to his daughter and then 
from him going down we start to see a relationship building between those two people who are father and and daughter with who are conflicted in every single possible way but at the same time they still have to deal with each other because their father and daughter it's beautiful it's dramatic and uh, and it's 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 uh, it's uh, masterfully uh, it's well executed by uh, by a, by a woman director by the name of Claudia St. Louis. And you had a transformation in that movie, right? Yes, because I played the character from uh, from the age of 30 to the age of 62. Yeah, and uh, you know, and I, I love these roles where you do have these transformations. One of my favorite roles of yours was Joy, which is with Bradley Cooper. Robert De Niro, another one of my favorite actors, um, Jennifer Lawrence. Yes. Uh-huh. And they had to transform you for that role. Are you transformed in that role as well? Too? Yeah, because because uh, I played the the love interest of uh, Jennifer Lawrence's mo- mom, so he had to be a older gentleman. So it was it was nice to see the transformation. You know, the transformation was in in the work of the of the of the makeup artists. You know, they added some some beard. You know, made it look gray and uh, give me like you know a few a few years uh, uh, on top of who I am and what I have and uh, and and yeah so it was uh, it was a very subtle kind of character very gentle uh, who came from nothing but at the same time was able to 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 inspire uh, um, Jennifer Lawrence's mom in the movie and then uh, he gave her hope again that 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 life is worth living you know and and it's funny because it's based from just a simple connection a simple look simple way of speaking a simple touch and then she was all alive again and and I like that because he he, he, he was a, a Haitian character he was a, a, a plumber just a normal and simple plumber you know just to say that you know the most be- be- beautiful things come from the most simple situations and, and I just want to jump to a role that was not too simple and actually it was the opposite in a multi-layered multi-tiered role your doctor in claws mm, yeah dr. Ruval yeah dr. Ruval who appeared to be like the the perfect doctor uh, for for Nisi Nash's character, the perfect love interest, and uh, as uh, the audience know now, he ended up being the the biggest uh, uh, body you know of uh, of the show. He was on top of all the the drug operation, and it was it was great to play that kind of uh, character. You know, from a good doctor to a good lover uh, to very respectful respectful son, and then to see another out of him where with all that is also a drug lord and you know what it's the reality of a lot of us we all have multi faces and uh, and 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 it's life we have to accept those kind of situations uh, and and I absolutely enjoyed uh, that character in joy uh, in uh, in clause because I dealt with a bunch of women uh, five of them to be to be precise and they all have different kind of characters uh, the show is set in Florida even though unfortunately we don't shoot here but you were here but I was, was here yeah, yes was, yes yeah <laughs> I came here we came here like for, for one weeks. week what? no one, one week, week for me and, week. And, 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 and two 
weeks for the crew. Right. But just one week for me. But that, that saddens me because it's a show set in Miami, but unfortunately we had to shoot in New Orleans. So uh, if any of the Miami people can listen to this, you know, people from the government, people who have power to change things, you know, please make Miami a location so people can come and shoot here because I love Miami. I'd love to shoot more here. And it was a hit show. And it is a hit show. It is a hit show, yeah. One of TNT's biggest shows. Yeah. I just want to get to, because again, I told you, one of my favorite actors, your performance in SWAT, that performance, you know, just drives straight to the heart. And you told me a story about that performance that then had me to really understand about the connection and why that performance cut straight to the heart. Can you tell me about that? Um, SWAT, now you make me think. Oh, SWAT, it was, uh, it, I played that character who was... Uh, Mm. He was involved in the, in the, human, the trafficking human trafficking with uh, with with the kids, especially uh, after the earthquake of Haiti, and uh, he was stuck in his own situation. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, it's 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 it, it was a character that dealt with uh, with some with another Haitian. Uh, storyline. I, I love that character because it, it's a character that spoke the truth. Uh, it's one of those where you think you know someone, but really until you get to sit and hear that person, you realize that you you, you don't know nothing. So uh, it's one of those where you can't you cannot judge someone by just what you see. You really have to make an effort to 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 open up a little bit more and and, and listen a little bit more, and, and then you might have a chance to 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 get that person. So I just want to talk very briefly about your producing hat because you've been producing projects for a while yeah I've done I mean I've done a bunch of uh, shorts and documentaries and a couple of movies but uh, I have to say that the latest one that I did Rattlesnakes you know is the one that's you know that's making a little bit of noise because uh, we shot it for very little money in 12 days so everything was well planned we're shooting in a beautiful mention in Montecito which is close to Santa Barbara for people who heard about Montecito that's where Oprah Winfrey and a lot of the very well of people live so as we start our first day we hear that there's a huge fire in Los Angeles we're in Santa Barbara we're like it's okay we're fine here three days later the fire is right on top of the mountain where we're shooting we have to evacuate everybody have to get out of the house leaving all the equipment and everything inside the house I am freaking out because I'm producing the project all the rentals are on my name insurance and everything on my name and now we're losing one two days are we going to be able to continue am I going to lose my cast am I going to lose my crew so it's like I was like stuck in a little motel room just uh, looking at, at the situation evolving and, and wondering what the heck I could do I needed to make moves. I needed to finish my movie. We only shot three days out of the 12. I had to find solutions. So, you know, uh, I did find solutions at the end, but it didn't come uh, easy. Yeah, I had to break a few a few laws, you know, to get uh, to my solutions, which I'm not going to say now because I don't want to get into trouble. You don't want to be <laughs> indemnified. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So the last thing, and this is why we always ask of our guests, can you... If you would give some advice to people that are 
trying to break in, people that want to get into the industry, and even for people that are in the industry and they're trying to make their way? Uh, well, the number one thing I'll say is that make sure that you guys love what you're doing. You know, if you love what you're doing, then it doesn't matter what you do, then you know that you're loving what you're doing. Number one. Number two is make sure that you get the basic knowledge of what you're doing. Whatever you're doing, if you're an actor, make sure that you know how to act. Take classes. You know, we cannot just get up and say, I'm going to act now. If I want to be a doctor and I want to operate on someone, I need to go to school and learn how to operate. So it's the same thing for our business. Yeah, I know it's the arts, but you know whether you want to be a director, whether you want to be a writer, whether whether you want to be an actor, you know there are some basic things that we have to know. So if you can have those two things together, the knowledge and the passion, I'll say, don't give up, don't give up, continue, don't give up, because you know you never know when your turn's gonna come, but you just have to stay prepared, be prepared and stay prepared, because your chance will come, and even if your chance doesn't come you still do exactly what you love doing so it's okay awesome 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 this was truly remarkable interview mr john louise taking a quick time out of his schedule that's why we're here live and we really appreciate you mr john louise thank you very much man you know i think i'm gonna have to go now otherwise i might miss my flight okay <laughs> thank you guys very much i have to i have to go but uh, hopefully next time it will be for a longer period of time okay we got him for an hour next time yes indeed and we're back here we are two fantastic interviews well done mr sharply that was excellent thank you sir that was some some masterful moderation and hosting there. Yes, yes, yes. That is hosting by all means. Yeah. By any means necessary through all environments. That's the way it is. Mr. Jean-Louis, I interviewed him at a coffee shop. I heard. <laughs> <It's> very <laughs> I think <accurate>. everyone heard. <laughs> in the Ellen Woods. It's, it's fine. Being a lot of industry meetings take places in coffee shops. So it kind of gives a kind of realistic feel of, you know. Big time Miami producer meeting with big time Hollywood actor making things happen at a coffee shop in Wynwood. You know, deals go down anywhere, anywhere and everywhere. All you need is a napkin and a pen. That's right. A deal memo. Handshake business. <laughs> <laughs> well, I said a napkin and a pen. You're gonna have legal coming up on another one of these podcasts coming up pretty soon. So oh, that's right. Yes. Make sure you write it down. Entertainment law definitely has to be on the docket. 101, 202, and 303. Love it. That's coming. Give us a master's in that. Yeah, but that was a lot of fun. Both interviews were, were really fun. Yeah. Um, it was great to do Matt during the Miami Medium film market. Yeah, that but, was good. I'm, I'm glad that because, again, you know, he's he's come for so many years and he's, again, you know, such a great uh, supporter uh, of the of the conference. And the fact that we were able to sit down, uh, you were able to sit down with him and just kind of get his whole origin story and sort of the track that he's gone on to get to where he is today, which, you know, has been a really interesting sort of journey. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad I was able to hear that some of his other former Weinstein colleagues have landed in great places and are continuing to do great work in the industry. So that's that's always great to hear. But uh, that is what this business is about, too. Yeah. You know, as you go through the industry, you know, you move up the people that you've worked with in the past. You know, they move to different places. Yeah. And then hopefully you connect in the end because, you know, you worked at an agency. Right. And I'm sure some of the people that you worked with at your agency. Right. Uh, which was 
uh, yeah, at ICM. Uh, at ICM, yeah, at the they, time. yeah, yeah, they've gone on to do other things. Oh, definitely, and, and yeah, I think that sort of it's almost like a class that you kind of come into your first big industry job, whether it's a studio, a production company, a network, a uh, uh, an agency, and you guys, you know, it's a group. It's like that comes in together, like you know, when you're almost almost like going to to film school, and you kind of go through the ropes together, and and you form a certain camaraderie with each other, and you're not only working together, but you're hanging out on the weekends. You're you know. You understand who you were, you know, when you first started, and and you do see a lot of these folks go on to to do really amazing things uh, in the industry uh, after your time as you know whether it was uh, as Matt said a, a receptionist or working in the mailroom of an agency, <laughs> right. uh, you know, uh, getting the chance to to get what we called uh, a desk, you know, becoming the the executive assistant or personal assistant or to a, a major executive or agent, and that really is a whole whole nother level of involvement in the industry. I, I like what Matt said about a second assistant being like mission control, you know, and that's so true because, you know, really, at least in those days, I don't know if it's changed that much now, but you really are sitting there with a headset and you're manning phone calls and emails and you're juggling a hundred different things in your boss's schedules and, uh, you know, important clients and, and, and creatives that are calling and, and coming up with ideas. You know, I love the story he said about uh, pitching Rob Zombie to do Halloween on the way to a meeting with Rob Rob Zombie. Yeah, yeah. That was so yeah. cool, you know, but those are the types of things that, you know, as an assistant, you have to always be on your feet and thinking and uh, and the idea they always told us at the agency was, you know, your job is to make your boss look good. Yeah. At all times. Yeah. Uh, and so that's I think that's that's part of like sort of um, the boot camp of the entertainment industry. Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember uh, Jimmy and I have been friends for years. Mm. And so when Danny Glover did the narration for one of my documentaries in L.A. and I live in Miami, right. uh, Jimmy came out, you know, in support there at the narration. And Jimmy and Danny Glover knew a lot of common people and they really had, you know, a great conversation that for me was amazing to see, you know, how at that point, you know, how the industry works and the inner workings of you know, the connectivity mm. that the industry has. And I love that we now here in Miami have such a connectivity. I mean, our market is, you know, pretty magnificent, you know, over time. Right. Uh, we don't have an incentive at this particular point, which has changed the dynamics of the industry and really helped the independent industry to, to move up. But I mean, historically, Miami has, you know, shot some of the biggest shows I've had some of the biggest films you shoot here and then that connecting element right you know within the industry has permeated itself yeah it dynamically permeated itself so another big thing with both of these interviews was to listen to the journeys how, of how Matt and Jimmy have made it to the point that they're at now right because it really does show that over time if you're consistent and you're persistent that you can really make things happen. Sure. And I really love to see how these journeys, mm. not only with Jimmy and Matt, but with our previous podcast, Adrian Wooten, right. and the ones coming up, yeah. uh, showcase exactly how you know you can take many different paths. Right, right. To yeah. move your way through. Well, there, there's, there's an old saying that I love to quote for the industry. It's that uh, there is no one way to greatness. Greatness is the way. Ah, I like that. But uh, but yeah, I think everybody's journey is different. But you do see, again, commonalities. And I do think, 
you hit it, the nail on the head there when you said uh, consistency and persistence, because this is an industry that feels like it can lift you up overnight, but it can also beat you down for many years, <laughs> you know, and yeah. you got to stay. Yeah, well, consistent. we know those stories. We, too. I, yes. From personal experience, I think we know those stories of the struggle of of maintaining a certain level of discipline to continue moving forward in spite of the obstacles, in spite of the rejections, in spite of, you know, whatever may be going on personally in your life that kind of feels like it can sidetrack you for a few months or a few years, but always maintaining that North Star and saying, this is where I want to get. I don't know how I'm going to get there. And sometimes it feels like, you know, the way you thought you were going to get there ends up being another route, but you wind up there. I think if you are consistent and persistent. Yeah. And, you know, Speaking of persistence, Miami's movie, little movie that could, and independent movies, mm. Moonlight. Oh, that won yeah. the Oscar two years ago. That's right. And we have a Moonlight, a Moonlight alum, Jarrell Jerome. Oh. Yes. Cool. From When They See Us. Right. Right. Yes. That just got nominated. 16 nominations. Lead actor. He had a dynamo performance in that show. Really? And, you know, you could see that spark Mm. as Kevin in Moonlight. Right. And then to see his turn as an actor. Right. And when they see us, that's phenomenal. That's incredible. He's the only actor that played both the younger version and the older version. Wow. And he knocked it out of the park for both. Wow. That's range. I got to see the show. I, I'm not, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to catch up on that one. But uh, from what you're saying, it just sounds great. And obviously, knowing his performance from Moonlight, you know, you can kind of see, you know, the raw talent there. And and given that opportunity with an amazing showrunner like uh, like Ava, you know, wow. Yeah. And filmmaker, because she directed as well. Right. Yeah. 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 Writer, director, just like, you know, just creating this renaissance of television, you know, uh, of, of all these amazing projects that she's worked on. And now, you know, to see the results with with the Netflix show, I think is incredible. So it's uh, it's it's interesting to see, you know, again, when you allow creative talent, the freedom and the platform to do great things, you know, how that how great that can become. Uh, and I think it does go back again to having more choices nowadays because, you know, in the old days, networks and studios had to be more picky because there were less outlets for distribution. There were they had to put more money into less projects. There wasn't this idea that there was this sort of vast depository of content that you can just continue to fill almost endlessly uh, mm-hmm. on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. So, um Again, I just I think it's really, really exciting to see some of these filmmakers, some of this talent, especially local talent, doing so well in the industry with these new platforms and these new opportunities that keep popping up. Yeah. So I just want to get your thoughts. So. Say 10 years ago, Mm. how many Emmy nominations did Netflix have 10 years ago, 10 years ago, 10 years ago? Not many. And that's what I'm saying. I mean, it wasn't even on the map, really. Not really. I mean, it was it it really was House of Cards. House of Cards. That was the first time that we realized that you could do a show that, again, you know, hate to, but felt like an HBO show, but wasn't on HBO. Yeah. But now, you know, you have now some of the new upstarts. Facebook Watch. Right. Apple is stepping into the game. Disney Plus. Disney Plus. Yeah. What do you think about that? The Mouse House. Yeah, they've taken their content 
and brought it home. Yeah, everybody's bringing their content home. Everybody wants to be, you know, now very guarded in terms of their their IPs and uh, and making sure that they get the first opportunity to to showcase that directly to the consumer. Where, you know, for when when Netflix was starting to get hot, you know, these big studios and networks were very happy to just license their content to mm-hmm. Netflix and you know get a nice check in the mail every month. Uh, but it, it it felt like at some point these big media companies made a conscious decision to say, okay, now it's time to bring everything home and and feed directly to our consumer base so so do you see facebook knocking it out of the park with a big hit do you see i mean apple knocking it out of the park with a big hit look you know it content is king and i really think that what's interesting about this and why it makes it such an exciting game to play is that you know it really just takes one show one breakout show to really you know house of cards created that idea that Netflix could produce this type of consistent uh, award-winning content. Uh, you know, I remember even going back to the, the earlier days uh, when you think about Comedy Central and how they were struggling for a while and then, you know, they got almost seemed back-to-back, you know, South Park and The Daily Show pretty much carried that entire network. So it's it's interesting to see that it really just takes one Hulu with no, The Handmaid's right. Tale. Yeah, it was Hulu with, with The Handmaid's Tale. And, and like I said, you know, Amazon with Mrs. Maisel. And uh, now they're about to green light, you know, I, pre- I think one of the most expensive TV series in, in the history of television or streaming or whatever you want to call it. So it seems like they're all just upping the ante. But it's almost like you needed that first show to kind of break through to say, OK, now we're players. And so, you know, it really is uh, incumbent upon these uh, big media companies to continue to search for new talent and new IPs. And I think one area that Disney, you know, there's been talk about this, may get themselves in a little bit of trouble is relying too much on their legacy brands mm-hmm. and not willing when you say IP, what is IP? Intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that basically means, you know, it's 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 a brand, it's something that you own. It's, you know, use Disney as an example, the Lion King, you know, that's a piece of intellectual property. So those characters, that logo, that look, that feel, that's 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 their intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's everything from using it in film and television to merchandising to theme park rides to Broadway shows. Uh, so you see how that that one IP can kind of just kind of like spread across like a rainbow uh and and i think that it's interesting to see again how valuable these ips are but again you know and and obviously disney has to monetize them as particularly when it comes to uh ips like star wars like the marvel uh studios that they purchased you know those were big purchases yeah you know we're talking in the billions of dollars for each of those brands and and of course they have to continue to unwrap that and unpack that and see where uh, whether it's a spinoff of Star Wars, not all have been successful. Uh, as we spoke about a little bit offline, some of them have. Uh, same thing with Marvel. Where do you go now after the first 10 years of the cinematic universe? You know, And obviously it doesn't seem like they're slowing down because the Spider-Man movie just came out. <laughs> it's a big hit. And it's a huge hit. Yeah. It's a big uh, hit. And so it's it's interesting to see now that there's talk of another Thor movie. Uh, so so it's But it's, it's going to be interesting to see where all this goes in terms of again relying too much on those legacy brands and not continuously looking for that next new creative idea that next new potential franchise uh i i think that the upstarts 
are more into that, obviously, because they don't have as many of the legacy brands. I'm talking about like, you know, Netflix and Amazon. And at this point, it's going to be very difficult to buy them. So I think that, you know, to find the new next thing we've never heard of, uh, I think it's really uh, going to be the upstarts are going to continue to up the ante. Yeah. You know, I had a conversation with Mr. Paul Brett, who's mm-hmm. Oscar winning producer. And that's coming up in our podcast series. And he spoke about John Favreau. Mm. He worked with John Favreau on Chef. And right. I saw the Netflix show Chef, which, I speaking of IP, John Favreau, uh, he's not reprising his role as a chef, but he's bringing back a lot of the chefs that were in that actual show. And the first show, it's the chef that actually trained him. Really? For the show. Yeah, huh. it's really, really amazing to see uh, this whole synergy. Right. He also brought on, on that episode, he had Gwyneth Paltrow. Right. And they speak about Spider-Man, which right. she forgot she was even in Spider-Man. Really? Yeah, so it's funny. Um, and for her. And also the Marvel series. So you see this synergistic connection with IP right. and the ability to use that IP for many different means in many different areas from TV to film and back to TV and film. John Favreau being an actor, a producer for both TV and film as an example. Right. And uh, that connection then with Mr. Paul Brett, who is coming up in one of our next episodes. We are at the end of this podcast and we didn't introduce ourselves. I'm Kevin Sharpley. J.L. Martinez. And we are happy to have you for Screen Heat Miami. We love to have you for Screen Heat Miami. And we are pleased to present this and the next upcoming episodes. For the extremely talented and uh, MMFM star, another good friend from across the pond, Mr. Paul Brett. We'll see you on the next one.